We were blessed through the generosity of a family member to have spent the last couple of weeks in one of the most beautiful places I've seen. How many of you have ever been to Maui? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah? Uh, there in Hawaii. And as I was there, I was pondering the text of Jesus's temptation that we're about to look at this morning. And I wrestled with this word, temptation. Because when you're surrounded by macadamia nuts covered in chocolate and mudslide cakes and good food and good drink, oftentimes that word temptation gets locked into the idea of, I'm tempted to have another chocolate-covered macadamia nut, right? Um, We jokingly toss this word temptation around. We think of temptation as doing something unwise or doing something bad. But true temptation, however, is not a matter of calories that may lead to earthly weight. It's a matter of eternal weight. Temptation is not just that which draws us toward an immoral or unwise action. Temptation is that which tests our allegiance, that which tests our worship and what we trust. And as we're going to see in our text this morning, Jesus will be tempted by by the adversary of God, by the very leader of the kingdom of adversaries. But it's not simply to perform an action that might go against the moral rules of God. Temptation here is far more than that. The simple and succinct manner in which Mark tells the story helps us zero in on what the temptation actually was and why we can be eternally grateful for the response of Jesus. And in the midst of the section we're going to look at today, I believe that we will see an encouragement and a call to endurance that was intended for the Christians of the first century. But it's also one that we can translate to today. Now, before we charge forward, our text will be Mark 1, 12 through 15, and we're going to start in verse 1 and just read through until verse 15. But before we charge forward, we need to pause to remember the context that I laid out a few weeks ago. I know it's been an eternity since I spoke last, but how many of you remember the intro at all? Well, Mark was mostly written during the core of the persecution against Christians by the Roman emperor Nero. And as I pointed out a few weeks ago, there are multiple contextual parallels between the proclamation of the kingdom of Rome and the proclamation of the kingdom of heaven that will help us if we remember them. In the Roman Empire, the Caesars were seen as incarnate gods among men, especially by the time of Nero. And they were viewed as the earthly rulers that could bring what's called the Pax Romana. Everybody say Pax Romana. See, now you know Latin. You guys are super smart. That's called the Peace of Rome. It's Latin for the Peace of Rome to the empire. And so the phrase peace and safety was the goal, and it was spoken of often among the people of the empire. And on the occasion of the enthronement, or the crowning, if you will, of a new Caesar, men would be sent throughout the empire to proclaim the evangel, the gospel, the good news that the Caesar had been enthroned and the coming peace was near. And to make sure that citizens remembered who they worshipped and who they gave their allegiance to, Statues or images that resembled the Caesars, the kings, would be erected throughout the empire. But in the midst of this so-called good news, Christians actually knew that it was terrible news. To those who gave their submission instead to the Jewish God, to Yahweh, and to the one who had come incarnate to the earth in the form of his son, Jesus the Christ, this was the worst possible news that could be. This news caused them to state clearly their allegiance. And if the news presented was that Caesar is God and king, if he is the ruler, 
They either had to accept it, become part of it, become part of the kingdom against God, or deny it in light of the truth that Jesus was actually king. And because they would proclaim this, guess what they would face? The possibility of death. And so after a great fire broke out in Rome and Nero needed a scapegoat for the people to blame, he looked to the Christians and began one of the most horrific persecutions and campaigns of martyrdom known to human history. Christians were falsely imprisoned simply for not giving their allegiance to Rome. They were tortured and then as a humiliating end to their lives, they would be dressed in the furs of wild beasts or stripped naked and thrown into the gladiatorial coliseums to be eaten alive by wild beasts as a halftime show to the gladiator games. The Roman historian Tacitus that chronicled this time in history said it this way, they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs. Christians across the Roman Empire knew this was the potential end for them too if they continued steadfast in their allegiance to Christ. And so the logical question then arose for these new converts in a religion that was barely 30 to 40 years old, how on earth could any of the converts to this new religion last? And where was God in the midst of this horrific trial and testing of their faith? Were they really supposed to stand firm in their allegiance to Christ no matter what the cost, even if death was certain? Well, now, as I said in the introductory teaching, we cannot be 100% assured that this was the sole or even primary purpose behind the writing of the gospel according to Mark. But we know it was definitely part of the context that made it such an important testimony and proclamation to the church. Now, imagine yourself huddled together in a home church with other Christians, hoping you are not found out, hoping you are not asked if your allegiance is to Caesar. You read from the Hebrew scriptures to see how they point to Jesus during your Sunday gathering, your Sabbath gathering. And maybe if you're lucky, you have a copy of the letters from the Apostle Paul that have just been circulating the church. And maybe one of your elders knows the oral tradition of the story of the life, ministry, and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what certainty do you have? And then you get a copy of the gospel, according to Mark. An elder steps forward and reads it cover to cover in your small home church. What do you hear as you sit listening to this gospel account? Immediately, the author clearly speaks that all that is circulating about Jesus is true. He is indeed the fulfillment of the one, the one that all, including you, have been looking for. He is indeed the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Just as we heard from two of our elders, Tyler and Patrick, over the last two weeks, the ancient Christian would have heard that Jesus was indeed the one spoken of in prophecy that would be heralded in by John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus is the one spoken of by Isaiah as the Messiah. And not only that, the very heavens opened up and the voice of Father God spoke the truth of who Jesus was, his very own son, his beloved the fulfillment of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, the one sent as the agent of God through whom the restoration and redemption of creation would occur. But you, as a first century Christian, are sitting there listening and you think to yourself, could he really be victorious? I mean, look at what's going on, you think, in our political system. 
as a first century Christian. We don't worry about that now, right? Politics and such. But you're sitting there as a first century Christian thinking, what is going on? How on earth could God be victorious in this kind of an environment, in this kind of an earthly kingdom that had defeated and stomped on the Christians and long before that, the Jews? Well, with our background now adequately painted, let's read from Mark 1.1 through our text this morning in verse 15 and see what we have to learn from this text. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open the spirit descending on him like a dove. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. The angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. A very plain understanding of the first few verses of our text for this morning is this. As with every human, Jesus was tempted to give in to the reign of the adversary. As with every human, Jesus was tempted to give in to the reign of the adversary. We believe and trust that Jesus was both 100% God and 100% man. And in his humanity, Jesus was tempted to give in to the reign of the adversary. We will see very clearly, especially in the first three chapters of Mark, but really the whole of Mark, that this is a story about two distinct kingdoms locked in cosmic warfare. For us here in American culture and American wealth, bombarded by media, We do not see it very clearly. For us, most of our interests and our views of kingdoms is based upon nationalism and political interest. Heck, sometimes even on Sundays, it's based upon who wears what jersey. We think in these terms, but not in terms of kingdoms. But for the first century Christian, under threat of persecution, they knew it by everyday experience, watching their brothers and sisters lit on fire as candles in the streets, thrown to wild beasts in the stadiums for people's entertainment, all for stating their allegiance to Christ above Caesar. And we are so far removed from it. I, uh, it's interesting to me how even in preaching this, I feel like a complete and utter hypocrite because we sit here in our wealth and our comfort and our safety. But when I get the chance to go to Burkina Faso, especially as we talk about upcoming trips, 
the thought immediately comes to mind that the second I step off of that plane in Burkina Faso, the chances of being martyred for my belief in Jesus skyrocket. Because when you're driving around and there is another kingdom that wants to destroy Christianity right in your face, it suddenly becomes very real. And so don't get lulled into a false sense of security that because we don't see it every day, this second kingdom doesn't exist. Their first century Christians knew it, and we need to be reminded of it, that this is a cosmic warfare between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his adversaries. And the author writes here with exacting precision in his use of symbolism to give those first century Christians the knowledge that they were not alone. I don't know about you, but as I read through this on my own and in the past when I've read through Mark, I read so quickly through these five verses here that I don't even really take account as to what's going on. But to the first century Christians especially, and to us today, there was tons of information given and spoken through this. And so let me show you what I mean. Notice the use of the word wilderness in the section we just read. While the Greek word also can be used to describe a desolate place, and will be used that way sometimes in Mark, it's only used four times to speak of the wilderness. And all four of those in Mark are here in the first 13 verses of chapter 1. You think the author was trying to get something across to us. For the Jewish tradition and throughout the scriptures, the wilderness was used to describe the place of testing through suffering. It was the location in which the heart of God's people were tested to see if they would stay true to their covenant loyalty to Yahweh. More often than not, these wilderness testings had to do with circumstances of suffering. There's also the statement of 40 days. Do you notice that right there in verse 13? He was in the wilderness 40 days. Only the number seven is used more often and is more easily recognized in Scripture. Within this 40 days of testing, those knowledgeable about the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, would have called to mind many, many other stories. The 40 days that Moses was on the mountain in Exodus 34 receiving the law while the heart of the people down below was being tested. It would have recalled Elijah's 40 days in the wilderness in 1 Kings 19, where he was supernaturally provided for by God, testing his trust and reliance upon God, even though he was a man that was firm in fighting on behalf of that kingdom. It would have recalled the 40 years of wilderness wanderings in which the Israelites were tested as to their covenant loyalty towards the Exodus God. In all of these, the original hearers would have associated a time of testing, suffering in the wilderness. But even more interesting is the statement that Jesus was not alone, but was surrounded by three other parties. Notice them, Satan, the wild beasts, and the angels. These are not just descriptors, these are massively important. First, remember that Satan is not a proper name, but a title. Everybody say, Ha-Satan. That's Hebrew for the adversary, specifically the adversary of Yahweh and his kingdom reign. The angels, likewise, are quickly identified, ministering spirits sent to do the will of the Father in ministering to those that are his. But the odd one is the wild beasts. Now, immediately, this would likely take the mind of the early believer to the wild beasts, used to kill their brethren. We can't be sure of that, but most commentators agree that could be the case. But it could have further connotations that I find very interesting. 
There's a lot of study on this subject in particular. Throughout Scripture, there is an interesting theme developed in this discussion of wild beasts. Now, I could take this and run with it for a whole other teaching, but let me give you some quick breadcrumbs. Sorry, guys, I'm back. It's going to be a long teaching. Hopefully, Tyler and Patrick gave you a reprieve and, and cut it a little bit short, but let me give you some breadcrumbs here of what this uh, theme is. In the initial creation, animals were created for enjoyment and to help humans. In the new creation, the prophets tell us that this will be restored, right? So at the beginning, you have this, this uh, relationship between humans and animals that was, that was good. And at the end, you'll have the same thing. The prophets tell us that in that restored kingdom, the lion will lay down with the lamb, the child will play with the poisonous snake, but it's not bitten. You know it's miraculous when snakes are involved and kids are okay with it, right? And so there is something that occurred in between when sin entered the world. Mankind and animals started to become at odds. Now, this doesn't happen directly after the fall, but comes after the flood and Noah's assistance to, uh, to preserve the animals. It happens when the animals become food for one another and for man. Take a look up on the screen here at Genesis 9, and notice the particular wording. This is God making his covenant with Noah. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Very similar to what he said to Adam and Eve. But then he says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens on everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. From this point onward in scripture, the wild beasts start to get used as a metaphor. You can find this all throughout. There's multiple scriptures in the prophets where they, they use this metaphor. And it's used as a metaphor, not just for animals, but it's used for mankind when we step out of what God intended for us into our natural, fleshly, earthly nature. It's used as a metaphor for when humans decide to be less than they were intended to be. When they greatly cloud the image of God within them, the authors of Scripture compare them, compare us, to wild beasts. Twice, Paul uses the phrase wild beasts in his letters to describe sinful humans. Human kingdoms in the book of Daniel are compared to beasts. In the book of Revelation, again, they're compared to beasts. These are kingdoms that fight against God. And perhaps the most blatant example of this is in the story of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Why don't you guys turn there with me to Daniel chapter 4. Go back with me just a little bit in your Bible to the left, to Daniel chapter 4. Everybody say King Nebuchadnezzar. How many of you remember him from the flannel graphs? In, uh, yeah? A few of you? Okay. All right, Daniel 4, 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? A little bit of pride right there, huh? Look at me, right? I guarantee if he were in 2019, he'd have his selfie stick with his phone, taking a picture for Instagram, going, Check it out, man. 
Take a look at me. Look at what I've done. Be taking a narcissist, a selfie. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws." Nebuchadnezzar's pride and worship of self led to him acting subhuman, and he became a beast. Dear brothers and sisters, look around our world right now. If you don't watch the news, just click onto it for five minutes. Watch Fox News. Watch CNN.com. Our world right now is not acting in reason, compassion, or love, ask yourself the question, what are we acting like? We're acting like wild beasts. When we worship ourselves instead of God, we become nothing more than beasts. The internet is the perfect example of that. Just log into Facebook. Beasts. Only in returning to worshiping Yahweh do we become who we were intended to be. Only when we bring our lives, including our media accounts, under the reign of Christ, do we become who we were intended to be. Look at how it turns out for Nebuchadnezzar when he does that. It's amazing. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Biblical authors use the symbolic language to speak of the fallen humanity in the realm of demons given over to the kingdom of darkness. What does this have to do with the gospel according to Mark, you might ask? Well, let's go back and reread Mark 1, 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, remember that the original Greek didn't have uh, punctuation and it didn't even have spaces between words. And so right here, you got to read this in line, being tempted by Satan, he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. All three were present. In these two verses, commentators and theologians have found encouragement for those first century Christians that's hard for us to fathom. Jesus was the perfect Messiah, the agent of God, the truly beloved. He had done nothing wrong and was in perfect obedience. And yet, 
Where did the Spirit drive him? Right into the wilderness, into testing, into suffering for 40 days. Among the wild beasts, tempted by Satan. No matter what the original Christians were facing, no matter what our brothers and sisters in any of the places Tyler prayed for, in Burkina Faso, anywhere else, or in the rest of the persecuted church, no matter what they're facing, God is with them and God has stepped into the fray with them to battle the adversary that they too face. And even now, when we feel as though the world has lost its mind and we are surrounded by beastly brutality, we can be assured that Jesus did not forsake us, but he has entered into the fray with us. Even as he came to us and willingly surrounded himself with the beastly world that we know. And the more we try and follow Jesus, dear brothers and sisters, the more we won't belong, the more the world will hate us, the more the world will fight us, and it will seem like a place full of wild beasts. Following Jesus in truth is not easy. And it brings, if nothing else, a feeling of being removed from the world in which we live, sometimes in a way that brings suffering. In giving this encouragement, the author is transitioning from the introduction of who Jesus is as the Messiah to his proclamation that the kingdom of God is near and active. And it's under God's, specifically Jesus's, growing reign. And in two short verses, the author encourages the hearers with four different things that we can likewise use for encouragement in 2019. No matter what you're going through, whether it is you're about to step on a plane and go someplace where you might be martyred for your faith, or whether it's something else where you are simply surrounded by a world that is infused with sin, and whether it's sickness or relational hurt or brokenness or pain, God wants to encourage us through this same encouragement that those first century Christians received. And so let's take a look at a few of those things that this small section of text gives us. The first encouragement in the midst of enduring suffering is the sovereignty of the Father. The sovereignty of the Father. Now, notice that the same Spirit of the Holy God was the one that anointed Jesus in baptism, called him beloved, anointed him in the wilderness. And yet, in that same wilderness, that same Spirit drives Jesus with passion into the testing in the wilderness. God was just as much at play and just as sovereign in the anointing of Jesus as he was in testing Jesus to see, as one commentator puts it, whether he will use his divine sonship for his own advantage or submit himself in obedience to God. Even in the most horrific situations of suffering, dear brothers and sisters, God is still sovereign as king, and he will use even the attacks of the enemy for his glory and our good. Now, this word sovereignty gets batted around in theological circles. By sovereignty here, I want you to think less about, was he the puppeteer making the suffering occur? And I want you to think more about the fact that the word sovereignty is attached to kingship, that he is the king, and in his kingdom, eventually things will be set to right. And even if the suffering that is brought against you is caused by Satan himself, God will use that to bring about his glory and your good. 
And this should encourage us when we deal with suffering. Because no matter how bad life gets, even to the point of death, who's on the throne? Jesus. Second, we see in these couple of verses the perfection and power of Jesus. As I mentioned already in the use of the 40 days, the author reminds the hearers that Jesus is the better Moses. He's the better Elijah. He's the ultimate lawgiver and prophet. He's the better Adam, tempted yet without sin. He's the perfect Israel. Rather than giving into temptation as they did in the wilderness, Jesus walks in perfect covenant obedience and loyalty to the Father. And Jesus is perfect and displays the power of God in this. And this leads us to the priestly capability of Jesus. Because of this perfection in refusing the temptation of Satan, Jesus will be able to be both the priest that offers the sacrifice for our sin, as well as the perfect sacrifice to give himself as a substitute, dying for our sins, making us reconciled to the Father giving us the ability for reconciliation, I should say. And this is why the book of Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews speaks to us multiple times about the fact that Jesus, because of his perfection, he is the perfect high priest. He is the perfect sacrifice. He is the whole thing gathered together. This is what Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers. In other words, human in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God the Father, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, tested in the midst of suffering. I guarantee that the author of Hebrews here is not talking about chocolate-covered macadamia. He's talking about the testings of life when we have the choice to give in to the reign of the adversary or give in to the reign of Christ. I think that's one of the reasons uh, that Satan has comically made Satan worship such a big thing, right? Because we Christians are like, oh, we're good. We don't, we don't worship Satan. I mean, that's over there, the guys with the, you know, the goat head thing and, you know, they got to sacrifice the cat and whatever it is they do over there. Oh, I don't do any of that. I, I'm far from the kingdom of Satan. Really? Oh, man, Paul paints him as this attractive, beautiful angel, this angel of light that draws people into what seems so good. We are a lot closer to the kingdom of Satan in everyday life than we even know, and sometimes even I would ask the question of whether or not the kingdom of Satan might even be dwelling within our own hearts. Well, lastly, we're encouraged because we see the ability of God to minister to his people. Just as our reading from Psalm 91 this morning contrasts beasts and angels, and I would have you go back and reread it now that you've seen this comparison. It speaks to the fact that the angels are there to minister. And we see that God, even in the midst of a wilderness full of wild beasts, is able to minister to his beloved. You might say, I've never seen angels. I, do angels even exist? Well, we're going to get into a little bit of angelology and demonology as we go through the first couple chapters here. But in regardless of whether or not you've seen one, does God minister to his people? I'll give you an example. Is I remember uh, a while back, I went and visited someone who was homebound, and I went to pray with them. And uh, 
I was sitting there. I'd, I'd come in the middle of the day, and uh, they had agoraphobia, and they were just weeping because of the situations of suffering in their life. And um, I was sitting there on the couch next to this person, and they looked at me, and they said, you know, the Bible talks about the comfort of God, but I just really wish that God would comfort me right now. And I, I looked at the person, and I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, you know, it's great that Jesus died for my sins and resurrected, but sometimes I just want a hug. And I looked at them and I said, well, I can give you a hug. Gave them a hug and got done. And they said, well, that was great. Thank you very much. But I just really wish that Jesus would do it. And I looked at them and I said, what do you think the body of Christ means? So often I know that many of you sit in this room on Sundays and go, man, Jesus, why don't you just you just try and comfort me and the person next to you is handing you a Kleenex. No, not right now. I'm waiting for Jesus to comfort me. I just wish that Jesus would hug me and your brothers and sisters want to give you, ah, not right now. I'm waiting for Jesus to comfort me. I just wish Jesus would intercede on my behalf and pray for me and the person next to you wants to pray for you. Not right now. I want Jesus to do it. Well, guys, what is the body of Christ? Jesus ministers to you on a regular basis through his body and through his spirit internally within you. God has the ability to minister to his people. And so these four things that were given as encouragement in these few simple verses, they're here for us in 2019, just as they were in the first century. The simplicity of these verses should not lead us to gloss over the amazing encouragement that the author gives to the original audience, and it should not negate for us. Uh, it should not negate these things for us in the present day either. But perhaps most amazing, moving past just this encouragement is in what is written is what is not written. If we look at this and we see the succinctness of it, we go back to Mark 1.13 and we continue on to 14 and 15, we might be left wondering, wait a minute, what was the outcome of the temptation? It doesn't say. You guys notice that? I think because we have the synoptic gospels, we just pull from other places and fill in the blanks. But remember, when this was first written, those weren't necessarily there. And so what was the author doing? Was he trying to leave a cliffhanger? But again, the beautiful simplicity of the author and his writing uses minimal words to convey huge meaning. And so here we find the second main point today. We know here that Jesus conquered the adversarial kingdom by giving his allegiance to the kingdom of God. Jesus conquered the adversarial kingdom by giving his allegiance to the kingdom of God. We could very quickly go to Matthew 4 or Luke 4 for more in-depth accounts of the temptation. And I would uh, welcome you and suggest you do that in your own private devotional time. But here in Mark, that would cause us to move too quickly past the omission of that statement. Many commentators have given their thoughts on what the author was trying to communicate in being so succinct. But the one that rises to the top is that he wanted to emphasize he wanted the emphasis not to be on the temptation, but on the following declaration. And that, in and of itself, is enough to speak to the outcome of the temptation. Do you really believe that if Jesus had fallen to the reign of the adversary, the very next thing he did was to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God? It answers it within itself. You see, if we look at even one of the temptation lines from Satan in the other accounts, we see that it was indeed about allegiance. It wasn't about eating a bonbon when you shouldn't. It wasn't about being tempted to watch that thing on Netflix that's brain candy, right? It wasn't about that kind of temptation. 
The temptation was to whom Jesus would submit his life. Take a look here at Luke 4, 6 through 8. Satan says to Jesus, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, Satan says. Satan held the kingdoms of the world in his hand. And he said, I give it to whom I will if you, uh, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answers Satan and says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. You notice this isn't about having too many calories. This is about allegiance. And the significance of Jesus's free will choice to submit to and proclaim the kingdom of God can only be fully realized when faced with the possible alternative, joining the kingdom made up of adversaries contrary to God's reign. Do you realize that it is the love of God that has allowed Satan to present mankind with an opposite choice? Do you realize that? It is the love of God that he has allowed Satan to move freely on this earth because he has given you the choice of who you will submit to. God or his adversaries. For that is what the word kingdom actually means. The Aramaic word that Jesus would have been using as he proclaimed the kingdom means kingly rule, sovereignty, reign. One commentator states it this way. It's about the fact of someone reigning rather than about the geographical area of the reign. It's about the rule rather than the realm. We're all so busy looking for where the kingdom exists that we miss the whole point. It's a king reigning over a people. And in fighting back against the temptation of Satan, Jesus was not just fighting the temptation to perform immoral or even amoral actions. He was stating who he worshipped and under whose reign he was allegiant and submitted. You see, dear brothers and sisters, that is really what every action, every word, every choice is about. It's about who we worship and to whom we give our allegiance it's about whether we want to rule our lives and have God come along for the ride to help us achieve our own ends or whether we want God to sovereignly rule the world and we are along for the ride to achieve his ends. And I think often when I look out at us as Christians, and I will say us, we put so much emphasis on the small things that honestly don't matter. I really don't think God cares if you watch an episode of a stupid sitcom on Netflix. And yet I see massive judgment in Christianity when somebody finds out that another Christian watches a certain sitcom on Netflix. <gasps> How dare you watch Friends? Well, Friends is stupid and it's got a bunch of garbage in it, yes. But at the same time, I don't really think God is worried that much about that thing. Yes, don't watch stupid stuff. Don't hear me wrongly saying, go do whatever you want. No, I think we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable in our Christianity. We emphasize those small things, and yet in the larger choices of life, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we submit to the church family we're part of, we go, yeah, I'm not so sure Jesus is worried about that. We need to put the emphasis back on the appropriate pieces. You see, whenever we act outside of God's desires and God's ends, for the kingdom of the world, and we focus instead on what we want to achieve with our own ends, we become Hasatan. Remember, it's not a proper name. 
And we'll see this nowhere more clearly is when Peter, one of the best friends of Christ, tells Jesus he shouldn't go to the cross to accomplish redemption for God's people. In a startling response to this desire, completely outside of the reign of God, Jesus responds to Peter, get behind me, Satan, adversary. Look here on the screen. This is Mark 8.31. We'll get there eventually. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Man, I would have loved to have seen this, right? Hey, Jesus, I don't think you quite got the mind of God right here, okay? But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, adversary, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There is a second piece of information here that helps us to know that Satan was in fact defeated. Not only that Jesus came and proclaimed this kingdom, speaking to us the fact that we must choose our allegiance. But there's a second piece here that helps us to know that Satan was in fact defeated, or at least bound up to a degree. Look with me in your Bibles just a couple of chapters over at Mark 3.22. Mark 3.22. Now we will go into this in more detail when we get here. But there is good possibility that Jesus is speaking here about what he has already done to Satan. You're going to see debate about this, mostly due to what it means for the future and eschatology. So you'll see debate in theological circles. But let's just read it for what it is here. In Mark 3.22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying about Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? And think about this. How can the adversary of God cast out the adversary of God? Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up, against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now we can quickly link this to a number of other places in Mark, especially in the first chapter, as we will see Jesus wielding authority to cast out demons and here the adversary, Hasatan, is called Beelzebul, which is the name for the leader of those demons. Jesus' point here is that there are only two options. You, can, you cannot serve both the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of God. And so if it seems that Satan's kingdom is falling apart, then in actuality, that kingdom is coming to an end. How so? Because the strong man's house is being plundered, even as we speak here in Mark. With every exorcism and every conversion to follow Christ, the strong man's kingdom, his household, is being plundered. Do you realize that you were plundered out of the kingdom of Satan? Jesus went into the kingdom and pulled you out. The best Navy SEAL operation to ever exist. You were plundered. And this work of plundering the kingdom of 
Satan began even before the cross, looking towards the work of the cross as the final nail, pun intended, in the coffin of any hold that Satan has on creation. And this is similar to Paul's view that all mankind was part of the kingdom of the adversary, but we were taken captive from that kingdom and brought into the kingdom of light. Would you turn there to Ephesians with me? Go to your right to Ephesians 2. Patrick read some of this to you last week. But it's beautiful when you start to think through what Jesus did in plundering the kingdom of darkness, binding the strong man to the point where he could begin the plundering. That didn't mean that Satan was completely removed, completely missing in action. It's just that he was plundered enough to, or he was bound enough to start plundering his kingdom. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 1. And you, Paul says, were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's another name and title for Satan, for the the head adversary. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Take a look at chapter four, verse eight. Therefore, it says, when he ascended, when Jesus ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. You see, in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, the Father God gave hope to mankind. In the ministry of Jesus, the Father manifested his kingdom in a way never seen before and began the plundering of the kingdom of darkness. In the death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, the Father ransomed you and I from the kingdom of darkness and conquered the hold of sin over us. In the resurrection of Jesus, the Father pronounced the finality of victory over Satan and the death he ushered into the world through sin and temptation. In the ascension of Jesus, he became fully enthroned over his people, the church. He equipped us to continue the battle through the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. And Jesus will come again to once and for all destroy the kingdom of darkness. This is the gospel. Amen? But we know this because we know the end of the story. Back in Mark 1, 12 through 15, we simply learn that the temptation occurred and Jesus emerged victorious, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the other accounts give us the detail in that defeat. This is Matthew 4, 9 through 11. Jesus said to him, all these kingdoms I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil, the accuser, Diabolus, left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus, through his allegiance to the reign and rule of the Father God, was able to bind Satan to the point he could begin plundering his household. Brothers and sisters, when those moments arise, when we are presented with possible actions or attitudes or statements, that we can act upon, that do not serve to show our allegiance to Christ, we have one choice. 
Give your allegiance to Christ as your king. And when we make mistakes and know that we need to repent because we have in that moment given our allegiance to a kingdom other than God's, we have one choice as Christians. Give our allegiance to Christ as king. The author of James, he says it this way perfectly. James 4, 4 through 8. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it said God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This morning, dear church, as you sit here, I want to ask you, is there conviction? Is there conviction within your own lives or within your own houses or within this church that there is an area of our life that is not submitted to Christ as King? Perhaps it's your job. Perhaps it's your finances your relationships, perhaps it's your submission to brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe it's your marriage, the way you treat your spouse. Maybe it's your parenting. Maybe it's your use of your sexuality. Is there something that needs to be handed over to Christ as king today? If that strikes a chord for you right now, right where you sit, I want you to write down A note to yourself of who you're going to talk to in this week. Who you're going to talk to so that you can help develop a plan to hand that part of your life over to Christ. Go ahead, do it right now. Think about what you need to hand over to Christ. The reason this is so important is because based on how we live our lives, we show the world where our allegiance lies. And we give credibility to when we voice the gospel. There are few things in this world that have, been, that have done more damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ than people who had lots of head knowledge about the gospel may speak that but their lives give no credibility to it. I've seen it in parents harming their children. I've seen it in friends harming friends. I've seen it in leaders like myself within the church harming their churches. Our lives need to be submitted to the king so that our gospel proclamation has credibility. Jesus conquered the adversarial kingdom by giving his allegiance to the kingdom of God. And you and I know that if we want to be a church that proclaims the kingdom as Christ did, we have to meet temptation as Christ did and answer with the same allegiance. It's a very important question that I'm about to ask you. Visitors, you can kind of sit this one out because this isn't necessarily geared towards you unless you want to become part of this body. But Those of you that are members, those of you that attend regularly here at Mission Fellowship, I want to ask you a very simple yet hard question. 
do you want to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God? Let's work on that one again. I don't know how to respond to the silence. I saw a few very passionate heads, but let's do this again. With your voices, there we go, we'll set expectations. With your voices, tell me, do you want to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God? There we go. That's the church I know and love. I got to write that in my notes next time. Jeez. (laughs) Set you guys up for failure on that one. My bad. Thank you for answering passionately. We want to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. We want to do it in the same way Jesus did, to meet the temptation as Christ did and answer with the same allegiance. Because only then will we be effective in proclaiming the kingdom of God. Let's go back to Mark. We're almost finished here. And let's take a look at Mark 1.14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying... The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What we see here, thirdly and lastly, is this. Having given allegiance to the Father, Jesus began proclaiming the kingdom of God. Having faced the adversary and emerged victorious, Jesus sees that it is his time to step forward in proclamation of the very message he has been sent to proclaim John, the one who prepared the way for him, is now in prison. His ministry is coming to its end. Jesus knows this and steps out onto the fullness of the stage. And it's for this very reason that he knows he has been sent. In the introductory teaching, I shared with you that because the gospel, according to Mark, was often read out loud in one sitting, the author had to cycle through similar themes and points multiple times for the hearers to catch on. Now, what's so interesting is if you listen to folks on the Pentecostal side of things, especially groups like, we'll we'll say, you know, brothers and sisters in the the vineyard movement, for example, uh, they very much will say, Jesus came to do the miracles and the works and the casting out of the demons, and let's let's do this, right? And if you go over to the Reformed brothers and sisters, of which I kind of consider myself a part, you'll hear, Jesus came to preach the word of God, forget the rest of that stuff, right? And, And you'll see this argument in theology but Jesus himself says what he came to do. Take a look with me at Mark 1, 35 through 39. A little bit further on in Mark 1. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. That's that word, same word that can be rendered wilderness or desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said, Jesus said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. So our Reformed brothers are right, okay? I'm just kidding. Hold on, hold on. Keep going with me. That I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now we'll get into whether or not we're supposed to be casting out demons and what demonology is and all that fun stuff. We'll be getting into that. But the reality is, is that Jesus came to do all of it. He came to act and live and practice and preach because the two had to work together. Our lives, if they are not devoted to Christ, are absolutely worthless in proclaiming the gospel, even if we know it and speak it and do our evangelism classes. Hans, why have we spent so many years building up the church and trying to work sanctification in there and get membership in place and do all this stuff? We should be evangelizing. 
What do you think we've been gearing for? What do you think we've been going towards? Building a church that is sanctified so that when people enter into this place, they can look at us and know that we aren't talking mouths, but we are people devoted in allegiance to Jesus Christ and that our proclamation is not just lip service. Amen? That is what we've been doing. That is who we are, is proclaimers of the gospel. And back in Mark 1, 14 through 15, we see two statements about the kingdom and two required responses of those who would seek to be part of it. First, the two statements. The time of the emergence of the kingdom and its king is fulfilled, he says. The time is fulfilled. All of history to this point, as we have seen even this morning, was pointing to this moment in which Jesus stepped on the scene. And secondly, he says, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, there's much debate about what at hand means. Is it future? Is it present? When will it come? And no one can give 100% conclusive answer to this. But as we'll see in the coming weeks, and as we move through the first three chapters, the majority of the evidence leans towards the idea that the kingdom was initiated and put in place at the very time that Jesus began declaring it. So that's why we can say the kingdom is here, but it's not fully yet. In our Orthodox Protestant tradition, rightly so, we spend a lot of time focusing on the cross and the death of Christ. And it's almost as if all of history was paused until that moment. But the gospel, according to Mark, gives us an understanding that the kingdom of God existed even before the cross. It was the cross that secured the place of every elect saint that desired a place in that kingdom through relationship with Christ. But it began when its king began to rule, and we see that here in Mark chapter 1. The king, Jesus. Now, how does that relationship with Christ come about for those that want to step into that kingdom? Through two required responses. First, repent. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, this means to turn away from one thing and turn towards another. Again, it doesn't just mean stop doing that amoral or immoral action. It means turning away from the kingdom of darkness toward the kingdom of light. And this is not just, not just actions. It is actions, but it's also heart and worship. The actions are a side effect of following Christ. It's to turn away from the allegiance to the kingdom of the adversary and turn towards the kingdom of Christ. To turn away from the kingdom of raising up ourself and turning towards the kingdom that lays down our life for everyone else for every other citizen of the kingdom, all to the glory of the king. Repent. If you have not repented, if you've not turned from that and engaged the kingdom of Christ, I would beg of you to do that today. The second thing is to believe the good news. And this is what we have been hammering home the last month of sermons. Was the good news that Jesus was proclaiming? Was it just that he was making a way through the cross to bring us into the arms of God? No, it wasn't just that. It was primarily and first and foremost that the kingdom of God was established, a kingdom in which Christ rules as king over a people submitted to him. And then as part of that, the cross is the way by which he secures our exit from the kingdom of sin in which we once dwelt, and it secures our entry into the kingdom in which he now reigns as king. When we believe the good news that the kingdom of God, the reign of Christ is here and is to come in its fullness. What it means to be a Christian is that we are committing ourselves to proclaiming it as Christ did. You don't get a pass 
that those other people, those missionaries, those evangelists, they go proclaim. You don't get a pass that Greg Laurie goes and does it, and so you don't need to. I can't put on a crusade. Every one of us should be moving forward, proclaiming our allegiance to Christ as king, to show that Christ is indeed king in our lives and the true king of creation. You see, Mission Fellowship, this morning we've been given encouragement that we have a savior, a priest, and a king who is with us in the midst of temptations and suffering. That he's with us in the midst of a life that tries to draw us to the adversary. But he helps us endure. And that encouragement is huge for every one of us in this room, no matter what you're facing. Our endurance is not so much needed in the face of martyrdom and torture, but it is called for in the face of apathetic self-indulgence and self-reliance. It is called for in the face of nationalism and politics mixed in with religion so that those surrounding us cannot discern between our God and our political candidates. It is in the face of riches leaving us to believe that we are self-reliant and no longer in need of God's provision. Endurance is called for in the face of false gospels and errant theology that lead us to believe that the good news is primarily about us, not about the reign of God over the world. Christ has interceded on our behalf and he has bound the strong man so that we might be pulled into the kingdom of light and he is with us by his Holy Spirit to help us endure. Does that give you encouragement this morning? Secondly, though, we've also been given a front row seat to the proclamation that the kingdom is not for some distant age. We don't live our lives now how we want it and then wait for this thing to happen where Jesus suddenly comes and then a new life starts. The kingdom of eternity, the kingdom of heaven starts now. And while there will be a day in which Christ fully reigns, his kingdom exists right now. That is why we who are Christ are called enrolled in heaven in the book of Hebrews. Our ability to proclaim this kingdom will exponentially grow as we take each and every day of our lives and submit them to the truth that our God reigns. Over the next few weeks, we will see Jesus describing and modeling what that means as we look in detail at the kingdom he is proclaiming. But this morning, this morning as we step into a time of response to what we've heard, as we step into a time of response to the fact that God has sent his son to be our perfect high priest, to encourage us in the midst of suffering. He has sent his son to proclaim the good news that he reigns. As we look at this, let's each take stock of what areas of our life we may have knowingly or even unknowingly given into the temptations of all that the worldly system has offered us. Whether it be selfishness, debt, pride, arrogance, self-protection, narcissism, apathy, love of entertainment that is not God-glorifying. Let's lay these things at the feet of Jesus and give him our full allegiance and devotion. As we go into our time of response now, let me finish with the words of the author of Hebrews. And worship team, you guys can come on up as we look at these. Let me finish with just a couple of quick sections here from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 from our reading this morning. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And in Hebrews 12, 28 through 29, if there's a question about whether or not that kingdom is future or now, let this answer it for you. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. As we step into this time of worship now, I want us to respond to this verse. I want us to respond to the gospel according to Mark, that we have been given a kingdom that is near, it's at hand, the time is fulfilled. And so if you've never repented and believed in Jesus Christ as your king, as your savior, as your Lord and high priest, today's the day to do it. And there will be some elders in the back to pray with you if you want to start your walk with Christ and figure out what it is to walk as a disciple of Jesus Christ, walk as a citizen of the kingdom. But for those of us who have already initiated that walk and maybe are even far into it, today is a day where we can take stock of our lives. We can be encouraged in the suffering that we go through and the testing of our allegiance, but then we can also look at that allegiance and know that it's time to lay certain things down. Our walk with Christ never stops. And in each and every day of our lives, we need to take stock and say, what do I need to lay down at the feet of my king?